Well, good morning, everyone. And if you are a guest with us, we're so glad you have found us. Glad to have you with us uh, in room or online. We're glad to have our guests checking in with us and love to hear from you and see if we can be of any help to you. As Brian said, I agree. Just thankful for the generosity of our church and the many people that serve. Uh, man, I so appreciate our, our children's ministry, Grace Kids. They're doing a great job. And, you know, the weeks that we don't have something for everybody uh, with our kids, we do these videos. So, man, I think their team does a really good job with that. And um, thankful for those of you that are helping serve and our kids. You guys do a wonderful job each week. And we're only taking, you know, we have the smaller uh, uh, kids that we're taking care of at this point. But Anxious to build that team back up and get the rest uh, in their classes here soon. So any interest on your part, please let us know. Check in with Gabe or Caitlin and we'll get you set up. And, but very grateful for those that serve in so many ways around our church. Um, Brian also mentioned, you know, Christmas Eve. Uh, we do two. We do one the, the day before Christmas Eve. And that's kind of designed to help those of you that might be traveling uh, Christmas Eve. So uh, we'll have it here. Looking forward to both of those services. And um, back we, a few weeks ago, we had a, a family dinner uh, gathering on a Sunday evening. And I shared several things uh, about our church and some concern, you know, things to be praying for. One of those things was to pray for an administrative assistant. And I, I probably should let you guys know that God has blessed that. And so Nicole Burton uh, is, is our administrative assistant. It's a full-time position. And we're glad to have Nicole on the team. And Nicole is over there. There she is. Yeah, everybody say hi to Nicole. She'll... Um, She'll be who uh, takes care of you when you come to the office or check in, and we're so glad to have her on the team, doing a great job, and just wanted to make sure you guys knew that. Thank you for praying for that. This morning, we are going to finish our study in the book of Ezra. Uh, so if you have your Bible, join me in Ezra chapter 9. And um, if you have liked having that little separate paper Bible thing that's kind of a journal where you can doodle and take notes, uh, in the new year... Uh, probably mid-January, we'll jump into Nehemiah. So I'm going to see how you guys do on your own with that, all right? So what you do is you go to Amazon, and you type in Journal Bible Nehemiah, and it'll cost you about five bucks, all right? So if you like that, you go for that. Uh, Amazon Christian Book is where I probably got these, christianbook.com. And so if that's a good tool for you, then uh, plan on Nehemiah after we get through the holiday season. But today we're going to be in Ezra 9 and 10, responding with God's truth. Clearly, we have plenty of opportunities to respond to the things around us, both good and challenging. And we take, um, we take measures to respond well, sometimes in maturity, <laughs> sometimes a little less. Uh, but we're constantly given opportunities on how will we respond to this thing that's been presented to us, this crisis, this challenge, even the good news. How do we respond? And so we're going to see how, how Ezra, our main character now in the second half of the book, uh, responds with God's truth and how he leads by example. Um, so in, in this context, Ezra and Nehemiah, as I've mentioned, and if you're kind of new to our study or missed a week or two, really encourage you to go back and, and check out the previous lessons. This is really a phenomenal study. It's a phenomenal place in, in, in history um, because Ezra and Nehemiah, though they're not at the end of the Old Testament in their writing, they are at the end of the Old Testament in their timeline. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, that's the end of the Old Testament period. Like after these brothers leave the scene, there's 400 silent years, they call them, and then Jesus shows up. So I say all that to help justify why we're in Ezra like the week before Christmas, all right? It's all intentional. It's all part of the plan, trust me. So Ezra kind of finishes out the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then, and then Jesus shows up. So we'll see when we get to Nehemiah's study, how that concludes uh, that, that particular time of history. Uh, so as I've mentioned in the, in the timeline of our study, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Uh, Zerubbabel came at the first part of Ezra and rebuilt the... One more time, as Zerubbabel came, the first part of Ezra and rebuilt the... Temple. temple. There you go. Good job, you guys. 
And now Ezra is coming back, and he's going to help reestablish worship. He's going to set the table for how we worship God now that we have our temple. Um, and then when we get to Nehemiah, he will come and bring the third wave of exiles back to Judah, and they will rebuild the, the walls. There you go. Uh, so that will help give some identity back to, to Jerusalem specifically. Um, so in our study, Ezra has come back and he's brought this, what we call the second wave of people back. And, and Ezra, is, again, he's not a prophet, he's a priest, he's a scribe, he's an intellectual and academic, and he has brought this second group of people back under the blessing uh, of the Persian king. But when they get back, remember last week we talked about there's 60 years between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Ezra shows up in chapter 7, though he wrote the first six chapters. He shows up in chapter 7, but there's been a 60-year delay from chapter 6 to 7. Anybody remember what took place during that 60 years? What Old Testament story? Esther, exactly. So Esther, the story of Esther, takes place during that, during that time. Um, and so now we get to Ezra. He's come back. When he gets back, the first wave of people and those that have been there, it's been 60 years. Like, that's a long time. That's not just a little, a little while ago. So much has taken place. And what happens is, what happens often for us is we have an expression. We call it the elephant in the room. What's that expression mean when we say the elephant in the room? We're talking about something that's really obvious, but we're not going to talk about it, right? So you have an elephant in your room, and I don't mean a stuffed elephant in the middle of your room. I mean like a real elephant who lives in your living room, and you invite people over and pretend there's not an elephant in the room. That's what that expression means. There's an elephant in the room. So there's something we probably ought to talk about. That's what happens with Ezra. He's come back, and there's this cultural thing going on that no one's really talking about. But it's actually a pretty significant big deal. And for you and I to read about it historically, we think, well, was it really that big a deal? And you'll see that it absolutely is a big deal. Interesting thing is, that issue is still a big deal. It's a big deal in our world as well. So let me walk you up to the culture, what's going on in this season where the elephant in the room has, has, uh, has grown and no one's talking about this person. There's a sin, not this person, this event. There's a sin that's become commonplace. And I don't know if you've ever seen that in your life, where something that you once was repulsive, you've now accepted Something that we were once against, we're now like, well, maybe it's not so bad. And pretty soon, we just kind of like adapt, kind of like you've heard the expression, the, uh, the frog in the kettle, where you put a frog in water and he's fine. You turn the heat up and he stays fine until he dies, uh, as opposed to putting him in hot water. He just grows accustomed to it. That kind of happens in culture, where something was seemed wrong, but over time, you just kind of like slowly accept it, and it's like, yeah, maybe it's not that big a deal. That's probably what's happened with Ezra and the people of Judah. They've accepted some things, but they knew were wrong. Uh, and so he re his response to sin is the topic of our discussion this morning out of these chapters. How do we respond to things that come into our life Throughout uh, Judah, Ezra has come back, and that this, this development is brought to him at the very first part of Ezra chapter 9, but I want you to understand the context of this. Uh, and by the way, I want to remind you there's notes available online. You can tap into them right now where you're seated uh, or come back to them, but kind of walks you through where we're headed. To understand the context of this kind of sin uh, we have to have a kind of a, a, a big boy talk, a big boy understanding. We're going to talk in these two chapters about what's called the intermarrying of the Jewish people to other people. And that was bad. And we're going to read that and we're going to hear about it. And then we're going to see what the response was. And for most all of us in this room, it's not going to set well. It's going to feel like, is that really a good idea what God says to do? Is that really what we should do? Uh, it's going to feel odd. It's going to feel like a rub. Uh, because intermarrying sounds like 
prejudice. It sounds like racism. It sounds like there's an exclusivity to God's people that is really kind of put off and repulsive. Well, that's not the case. And so when we read about this issue of the intermarrying that's taken place, we have to understand the context of this. So as I just jump into this, three things I want you to know, this is not about racism. This is not about there's a group of people and they're better than other people and so they should look down on them. That's never the case. Even when God speaks highly of his people, it's not the case of looking down. Please understand that. And that's true because of number two. Number two is this is about why God has a people. Why is there a Jewish people? Why was there from the beginning and even today and into our future? God had set apart a specific group of people. He called Abraham, who was not a Jewish person. He he started it. He would be the beginning, but he didn't show up with that. So God found a guy and says, you know, I want to do something different in you. I want you. I'm going to set you apart because there's going to be something unique I do through you. This is the first time God in all of eternity has had that conversation with a person. And he chose Abraham. And through Abraham would be born the Jewish nation. That's all what we call the Abrahamic covenant, where God says to Abraham, here's what I want to do. I'm going to do this thing for you. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to give you a land. Uh, There's some promises. And there's this agreement that God's going to see fulfilled in even our future. God has a people. God has a people, and it's very important to him. Number three, this is about learning to trust God and his rules. This might be the hardest part for most of us. Most of us aren't dealing with some Old Testament issues of intermarrying with the Chaldeans or the other people. Uh, Most of us are going to have struggle with, why does God put a standard in my life? Why has God said, this is good, Mm, this not so much, this you need to run away from? Why does God do that? Can I trust God for his rules even when they don't always make sense to me? See, there's a challenge of faith there, isn't there? So we see this culture of which this sin is made evident. So after God had set apart this people, he did it for one reason, and that reason was to bring Jesus into the world. Jesus would be born when the angel went to Mary and Joseph. That was very targeted. That was very planned. It wasn't haphazard. Uh, The angel didn't say, okay, God, there's a bunch of people down there. Who should I pick? Uh, God had brought through this promise from the time of Abraham all the way to Jesus' birth, uh, this line of the Jewish people that Jesus would come into. That's why we have a Jewish people. That's why we have this nation. So this issue of intermarrying is not a racial thing. Um, The various nations nearby them that they weren't supposed to intermarry with, uh, they would be from a similar Semitic background. So it wasn't about the color of their skin or their nationality. It was about the fact that God had a people and he chose them and gave them some rules, some guidelines. And by the way, don't miss this. He didn't give them guidelines so that they would be perfect. God didn't give the Jewish nation, here's what your rules, if you'll do these rules, you're perfect and Jesus will come through you and everyone's going to be saved. He gave them rules to set them apart. Everybody say that phrase with me. He gave them rules to set them apart. You're a unique people. I want to do something through you and it's not going to look like everybody else. So he gave them some rules, some standards, some guidelines. That's why you have these kinds of rules. Whenever God sets a standard, it is ultimately for our good and his glory every time. I'm going to say that again. Whenever God sets a standard, it is ultimately for our good. He's not doing it so we suffer and have pain and and hate life. He does it for our good, ultimately for his glory. And then I added every time, not just once in a while. But we tend to not like standards, we tend to not like rules, we don't like precepts, we don't like laws, we don't like restrictions. So when the law is broken, the whole system does not fall apart because God is founded on God's character, and that is one of love and grace and truth. So yeah, we, we break the rule, 
Yeah, we crossed the line. Yeah, these people intermarried. God doesn't throw up his hands and say, wow, I tried and I'm out of here. It's like this is all built on God's character. He gives us the rules and the standards for who's good. One more time. He gives us the rule and the standards for who's good and whose glory every time. And so we have, that's the setup of this cultural crisis that we're going to read about. Um, and you're going to get uncomfortable when they're told to divorce them. That's going to sound like, nah, I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. Just hang on to that thought, and we'll walk you through that before we're done, hopefully. Ezra chapter 9, if you have your Bible there, verse number 1, after these things, the these things is in chapter 8, when Ezra arrived with the people, the first thing he did was figure out all that money. Remember the king sent them with all this gold and silver, basically a blank check. So when he got there, he got it set up the treasure and set up where the money goes and all that was taken care of. Verse number one, after those things were done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. So verse number one, you got, you got the scene. You got a bunch of people. Remember the word Canaan, Canaanites? This goes back to when, when Joshua first brought the people into the promised land. This is the group of people that were there, uh, the, the, the Canaanites. And then you got from Moab down south, the Moabites. And the instruction back then was, okay, Jewish people, we now have this land that we're all going to go into. This is ours. And we're going to flourish, and, and God's going to bless our seed, and it's going to be a great nation. Don't intermarry with them. And that was the rule way back then, and it's still the rule there in this, in this, in this context. Verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, God's people, the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. What that means is the leaders led the way. Like the guys in charge of other people, when they came back to the land and they come back, they've been in Babylon and, and they show up, man, we're home, we're back in Judah, this is where our grandparents live, this is where our parents got started, and they're back home. And they came back perhaps with the intention of, yeah, man, let's just do, let's just do God's work here. But over time, they began to intermarry. One of, the, one of the people of the land would come and ask the father for the daughter's hand and the father would say, you know, that's not a bad looking dude. And he's got sheep, you know, so yeah. And pretty soon the yeses became more prevalent and now we've intermarried and we've justified it along the way. Please, what I said earlier, don't forget. This isn't about cultural racism. This is about God setting aside some people and saying, I got a plan for you and I want you to do this for your good and for my glory. But when it breaks, it does not all fall apart because of God's goodness and his grace. Verse 3 Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, what's he do? This is his response to, wait a second, it's this bad? I didn't realize this. I tore my garment and my cloak, the outer garment, and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. He was shaken. This troubled him. This wasn't like, oh, you silly people, you shouldn't have done that. It wasn't that. It wasn't lighthearted. It wasn't like, ah, oh, man, that's a bummer. This is going to set us back a little bit. He was torn up. He was remorseful. He felt the weight of the sin. He felt the weight of the guilt. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities, remember he's a part of it, he owns it, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. 
From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. For our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. Verse 7, 6 and 7 tells us when you sin against God, it always affects other people. He says, our shame, our iniquities, why we've lived this way, why we haven't trusted you, it's clearly affected everything. The kings, the plundering, all this bad stuff that's happened. God, this is because we've sinned against you. So Ezra is crying out this prayer of confession. And it's heavy. This isn't like a Christmas message quite yet, right? And this is like the, the elephant in the room has got to be exposed. And so he throws it up in verse number eight. I love this. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. The word for favor in some of your translations is the word grace. For now, for this little season, we have grace. We've received favor from you um, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. We are no longer in Babylon. We're back home. Verse 9, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house for, of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So what's happening here, there's a lot going on and I won't go through every little detail, but this is, this is phenomenal. This is amazing when you think about the weight of Ezra, the priest, the one who would stand before God on behalf of the people, and he feels the weight of their sin. The elephant in the room has been exposed. We can no longer remain silent. This is a big deal. God, we've sinned against you. In Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives. Their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. That's the issue. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. See, that's the problem. The issue, the reason God set them apart and said, hey, guys, I really don't want you marrying a bunch of other people. Here's why. They have gods. They're mixed up in a bunch of weird stuff. And I don't want you to be led astray. That was the reason for the rule. For your good. So when someone did intermarry, it wasn't like God said, oh, I lose, I've given up. He says, okay, it's going it's to be a little harder. But he doesn't give up on us. And Ezra's prayer to God says, Lord, you've extended grace to us. You've been so kind to, to get us out of Babylon, to bring us home. You've been so good to us. And what have we done? We've returned to the old ways of our forefathers who first intermarried. We've done the same thing. By the way, just to be honest and show you all the cards, King Solomon was guilty of this. King Solomon, the guy that writes the Proverbs that we're always bragging about, he was a mess like big time. Joseph was given an Egyptian wife. Moses married both a Midianite and an Egyptian. Remember the story of Ruth. Ruth, a Moabite, was given special place in the lineage of Jesus. There's your Christmas part, okay? Uh, right there, and you see this in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 5. And Salmon, the, the father of Boaz by Rahab... Isn't that amazing? Uh, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. So Rahab was the prostitute. She's in the lineage of Jesus. Ruth, uh, not a Jewish girl, is in the lineage of Jesus. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. So you see, God uses the horrible mess. God uses all these people that break rules. He uses it still for his glory. Listen, God will not go unglorified. He gives us rules for our good and for his glory, but when we mess up, he's still going to be glorified. He's still God. He's not like, oh, man, you guys blew my testimony. I'm going to leave the building. God never leaves the building. He's God. So he is ultimately still glorified. The bottom line, the rule was in place because a person who married a pagan was inclined 
to leave the faith, was inclined to worship the false gods. We don't always need to understand everything about God's rules, but we should accept the challenge to trust him at his word. I'll say that again. We don't always need to understand everything about God's rules. See, we like to explain things and talk ourselves to where like, oh yeah, I get that. That's why you're supposed to do that thing. Sometimes we don't understand it enough. But we should accept the challenge to trust him in his word. Paul gave similar instruction in the New Testament era in 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says to the Christians in Corinth. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So Paul says to the church, don't go like intermarrying. Don't even your close business ties. Be real careful because there's a real difference between those that walk in the light of Christ and those who refuse to. So Ezra has torn his garments. He's mourning. He's lamented. He's confessed. He's speaking on behalf of the people. What you see in that is a very awesome principle. When we have a high view of Scripture, we have a realistic view of sin. Can you put that on the screen? This is a great statement. I want you to catch this. When we have a high view of Scripture, we have a realistic view of sin. The elephant in the room is how we deal with sin. And I'm not talking about intermarrying. And I, don't, I don't even know what sin you might be thinking in your head, like, yeah, there's this thing. A high view of Scripture says I can trust God at his word. God isn't a big, mean person who's trying to make my life miserable and force me to live in this tiny little box with no fun. God's given rules. He's given standards. There's some things that honor him. When I understand Scripture, when I have a high view of Scripture, I respect the word. I submit to the word. I say, God, guide me with your words today. Help me to speak truth as you would. The more I do that, the higher view of Scripture, the more realistic view I'll have of sin. And by the way, a realistic view of sin is not perfection. It's not like I go around saying everybody's sin. I've got a high view of Scripture, and I see you, brother. No, that's not what a high view of Scripture does. It does this. It helps me understand sin. If you find yourself justifying sin, you may be ignoring the power purpose, and promises of God's word. Again, if you find yourself justifying sin, well, just this little bit or just this one time or it's not so bad, I'm not hurting anybody else. If you find yourself justifying sin, you may be ignoring the power, purpose, and promises of God's word. When we, when we make little of sin, we belittle God's holy character. So for Ezra to have said, yeah, I shouldn't, why'd you tell me that? I really don't want to hear that bad news. And he just ignored it. He would be ignoring the holy character of God and what God has called his people to be. And he would have failed. It's just my sin. It's not hurting anybody else. Or it's a decision two adults made. We, we're, we're big enough. We can do that, right? I'm not hurting anyone. Don't forget what Ezra said in verses six and seven. Our sin always has ramifications towards others. We can't ignore that. You might remember what David said in Psalm 51, verse 3. This is after the sin of Bathsheba, horrible sin. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David says to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again, Psalm 51, 3 and 4, David says, God, my sin that I did, and you guys remember the story, he, he commits adultery. He has the husband killed. This is the guy who's going to be the king. He's, he's a good guy, but did he ever mess up? He says to God, it's before you that I sinned. Sin always has consequences. Sin always costs. How did God respond to our sin? What does God do this morning when he looks down and sees me and you and, and our minds stirring and our hearts somewhat maybe at times jaded? How does God see it? What did God do? Jesus died in my place. That's what he did. This Christmas season, I hope the first foremost prayer in your heart is, God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you that you came. 
Thank you that you saw the mess. You saw what, what Ezra and the guys led us up to in the Old Testament. And you inserted Jesus. God came. God, thank you for coming. And absolutely, thank you for traditions and holidays and time away and all the good stuff. God, thank you that you came. Thank you that Christmas matters. Jesus died in my place. One of the most important phrases in all of our doctrine, all of our theology, he took my place. It's not something he did up there a long time ago for a bunch of other people. And I look back and think, yeah, do I believe that? He took my place. That'd be a good thing to say out loud as worship to God in this very moment. Say that with me. He took my place. One more time. He took my place. So for that reason, we say, God, thank you for Jesus. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He gave his life so we could know him. 1 John 1, 9, so if we confess our sin, we acknowledge, we repent, we confess our sin. He is the faithful one, and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness. Yeah, well, what about this sin? What about that past? What about that thing that I did? He cleanses us from all the unrighteousness because he's God. I love it, as I mentioned in verse 8 and 9, when Ezra's note of grace, but now for a brief moment. But now for a brief moment, God, you've, you've interjected here and you've shown us your grace and kindness. The people have sinned. We're a mess. I'm just realizing how much of a mess we are. The elephant has grown. And he says, but God, right now you've just extended grace and you got us out of Babylon. You put us back home where we belong. And I look around and I see this horrible, horrible mess. God, you are good. Your loving kindness never ends, Ezra says. Ezra knew God's grace. Ezra knew God's grace, but don't forget, David also knew God's grace. That verse I read where he said, man, it's against you that I sinned. Before that, in Psalm 51.1, David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to, based upon, measured with your steadfast love. Have mercy on me. No matter the mess you might be sitting in right now, no matter the stuff that kind of clouds your head a little bit, we can come to a holy powerful, gracious God, and say, have mercy upon me according to, based upon your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. God blots them out. He doesn't just put them over here and put them in a drawer and say, you know, I'm going to put them over here, but there's going to be a day when I'm going to come over here and open that drawer and say, "Uh uh-huh, see, this is who you really are. God doesn't do that, does he? Everybody say amen to that. He doesn't pull out our yesterday's sin and say, you know you're a mess, and I just don't want you to forget that. God never does that. He blots them out. The whiteboard is clean. Your sins, all those sins he paid for, he blots them out. That's what God did with our sin. Verse 15 of Ezra 9, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. We have to understand our rightful place before a holy God. I don't stand before you, God, with my pride, with my stuff all together, with my house all cleaned up and everything's perfect. I come before you in desperate need. When we have a high view of Scripture, we have a realistic view of sin. But that's not all. When we have a realistic view of sin, we have an amazing view of grace. Right? Scripture helps me see sin for what it really is. When I see sin for what it really is and who God is and what he's done, I've got this amazing view of the goodness, the grace of God. In Ezra chapter 10, what's going to happen? Let me just jump right to verse 1. He says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, so this is in, in the moment, there's no separation in the chapter, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. So what, what Ezra is feeling is he's saying, God, we've blown it. I can't believe the sin of our people. There's a crowd of people now gathered and weeping with him. They're feeling the weight of God. I can't believe we let that elephant grow. I can't believe we've let this thing go. 
And Shekinah, the son of Jehel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Yeah, we did that. It's kind of, it's kind of happened over the last 60 years. We're kind of a mess. But even now there's hope. Verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Oh, my word. This is like the worst thing on the planet. Ezra's honestly saying, I can't believe what's happened here. Some guy from the crowd says, you know what? I just think we need to like divorce the wives that are wicked. Ezra, lead the way. Show us how to do it. God's with you. Word driven means that we don't get to skip the stuff that we want to skip. I would like to just skip and get back to Gabriel and Joseph and say, you know, it's really kind of got a cool story. But you got to stop here and say, they were in a mess. In this context, the answer that was brought out was the, those that were married to the wicked, and I'm going to assume the most of the wicked, they were sold, leave it, walk away. Be done with this. Purify, cleanse. So clearly, this is the challenging part for us today to understand completely. When we sense the Lord's heart for a matter, we should be strong and act on it. Remember James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. You might have a conviction about something. You might see the elephant. You might have discussions about, yeah, I think this is wrong with the world. Step up and do something is what the Scripture teaches. So verse number 10, Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you've broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. We got ourselves in a pickle. So make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you've said. The rest of the chapter, they talk about how they do it. Kind of weird. They go before and they have these, these little court hearings. Who's wicked, who's not? I think inserted there would have been an opportunity for people to say, yeah, I married someone who doesn't love God, but God, hey, do you want to love God? And she might have said, yeah, I think I do want to love God and let's stay happily married. That probably happened. But for those that didn't, it's time to move on. Um, let me answer a few weird concerns right now because you're like, so wait a second, what does that mean for me right now? Dealing with sin is not the same as being judgmental. Dealing with sin is not the same as being judgmental. If you've got stuff to take care of in your house, if you've got stuff that the Lord brings to you, we don't get judgmental with each other. I don't look at your mess and say, wow, you trust God for what he's doing in other people's lives. We act judgmental when we don't like something, when we see ourselves in a better place. Hear me. You guys know that most of the time it's none of your business, right? Most of the time it's none of my business when someone's going through something challenging and trying to, they're trying to deal with something. Let's not be judgmental in how we respond to people dealing with sin. Second thing, admitting sin is human. I don't know what it is with church world. I don't know what it is with me and my Christian brothers where we think the norm is to be without sin. We think we live in a place where, of course, I love Jesus and I go to church and I do this and, and I don't have sin. And every once in a while, something bad happens, and I come back. Why do we live in a place where we assume that's the norm? There's someone in this room right now, a lot of us, that need to hear it's human. We struggle. There is a battle right now in everyone's hearts, not just the weak, not just the person who's like, I'm not sure I understand everything. All of us, there's a battle constantly between the flesh and the spirit. Paul. The Apostle, Romans 7. Man, there's this battle inside. Man, I wish I could. Blah, 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 blah. But yet in church world, we think, well, we're all kind of tight. We all, we all got this together. Everything's perfect. The car's clean. I have no issues. And that person who sins, we look at them like they're the anomaly. It's like, that's kind of weird. That person sinned. When I say to sin is human, that doesn't mean, ah, don't worry about it. It just means we're living in the flesh. I think a holy gathering such as this ought to be the kind of place, the, the groups, the relationships, the times around the coffee tables that you have where we're honest enough to say, hey, I'm struggling with something. I did something the other day. I said something to somebody. I, I'm, I'm kind of torn over here. 
But for some reason, we think in American Christianity that we all have it together, and that's the new norm, and the person who's struggling, well, that's just really too bad for them. Admitting sin is because we're human. All have sinned. Paul made it really clear to us. When someone is dealing with sin, we should applaud and support. (laughs) Did you guys catch that? When someone's dealing with sin, they're struggling. They're like Ezra down there with their, they're pulling out their hair. Man, I can't believe this is going on. We should, we should come along. We should applaud. We should support. We should bless. We should, we should help. Not say, well, boy, did they ever. Yeah, you should see what my old hump's over here. Where's that come from? So dealing with sin isn't a place to be judgmental. Admitting sin is a place where we acknowledge, God, I love you. You know I love you old habits, issues, whatever it is. And we come alongside, and there should be Christian brothers and sisters first to come alongside. i got to say this, and I'm sorry this is going to go a little bit long. Don't you ever gossip about that. When we talk about someone else's mess to someone else, I think, personally, you've crossed a sacred line. And I just, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know if God's like, you shouldn't. I know what it feels like to me. Don't talk about the other person's mess. Come to that person. Come alongside, love and encourage and support and say, how can I help you? And let's have it be, let it be a sacred place. Let it be a place that's safe. Not a place where I'm afraid to say that I have a struggle because I don't know who all is going to find out before the sun sets. Incredible danger to the church today. It's a cancer. It's a cancer that can get in any group of fellowship. Please, guard your hearts, guard your mouths with that. Admitting sin is human, all have sinned. A high view of Scripture and a realistic view of sin do not make you legalistic. If you're one that's like struggling with this thing, it's like, Lord, the Lord's convicted me about this thing, but those guys seem to be okay with it. I don't think I should intermarry with this Moabite, but they seem to be okay with it. You're not being legalistic. Matter of fact, let's be careful with how we use that word. It doesn't mean half the time what we think it means. Legalism is, I'm trusting God, my salvation, on how good of a person I am. But sometimes as Christians, we feel like, well, I have this conviction, but no one else does, so let's just make the elephant bigger. A high view of Scripture and a realistic view of sin do not make you legalistic. Respond. Be doers of the word. Um, okay, I got to do this part, and, and again, just hang on. It's, 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 we're, we're, we're going somewhere. Can we talk for just a moment about marriage and divorce for the Christian? Please don't hear in Ezra chapter 9, you know my spouse, I'm not even sure they're saved, so I think I'm out. I think I'm just going to like divorce them because I want to be like Ezra. Don't, don't do that, all right? That's not the answer. Real quick, marriage and divorce for the Christian. Trust God to bring you and your spouse together. And I mean that in both ways. If you're married and there's some stuff going on, trust God to bring you together. Unbelieving spouse, backslidden spouse, spouse loaded with issues. God, I'm going to start with confidence in you that you can bring us together. Those of you that aren't even married yet, you're like looking forward thinking, I can't wait except I'm a little nervous today. (laughs) Trust God to bring you together. Trust God that he's going to bring your spouse into the scene at the right time. I wish church could go three hours because I would love to tell you the story of me and my amazing bride, how God, in his timing, brought two people together. It's a great story. I'll tell you another day. Trust God to bring you together. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. And the parents are all applauding inwardly right now. I can't believe there's no outward applause on that, parents. Don't be in a hurry, you guys. God's got someone for you, and he's going to do his work as he does his work, if he has someone, if it's his will. Don't be in a hurry. That's where we get in trouble. That's where we take shortcuts. That's where we say, yeah, but God, look at everybody else, and God, look at my age. And God knows exactly everybody else. He knows your age. Trust God in his timing. If it's a struggling marriage, God, I'm trusting you. There's an end. There's, something where, there's a direction we can go. I'm trusting you for that, God. If you're anxious to get married, if you're excited to find someone and to to see this thing move forward, you always start by trusting God. And don't marry someone who's not a Christian. There, I said it. 
Yeah, but what if I did? Well, if you did, that's another, that's another chapter. Let's get to that. But if you haven't, then just don't. Just decide, you know, God, I'm going to trust you for someone. Yeah, well, what if God wants to use me to bring that person? Okay, do it a different way. Don't start with marriage. Evangelism. 2 Corinthians 6, don't be unequally yoked. Remember, God gives us rules. Why? For our and his. So when we break that rule, he doesn't leave the building. A lot of people have married someone who wasn't a Christian yet. God can work it out. Things can happen, and sometimes they don't. Not because God failed, but because we stepped out. If you have an unbelieving spouse, Scripture says to pray for them. If you have an unbelieving spouse, pray for them. The Scripture says, pray and be an example. Uh, 1 Corinthians seven twelve, Paul says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that's just meaning he's, he's letting us hear his heart, but this is all inspired of the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So some of you are like, so I don't get to just walk away. <laughs> no, you don't, all right? If the unbeliever decides to stay with the believer, then stay with him. Don't, don't bail. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live, she should not divorce him. Verse 14. This is going to go fast. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. You're like, what does that mean? And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Here's what that means. We call that in theology common grace. Married, you know, married couple, saved, unsaved partner. The goodness of God through the saved partner will bless the unsaved partner. You're like, the, you, you got a way better chance of doing this right by staying married with the saved person. And God wants to reach the unsaved partner. The best way to do this is through the saved partners. That makes sense. Have I lost anybody? As opposed to saying, you know what, you're unsaved, so I think I'm just going to check out. No, God's put you together, especially in this context if you have kids. God's saying, I want to bless, I want to, I want to step in. The common grace says, because God's people have Christ's spirit, the people around you are better off. Did you guys know that, by the way? Flagstaff is a better place because of Grace Community Churches, church and churches like ours. God's people carrying God's spirit, living in a world that's a mess. The more of us we are, the better things seem to be. It's called common grace. It's true in marriage. I've got an unbelieving spouse and I'm struggling with them. Well, just trust God, pray, get counsel, surround yourself with good input, but don't leave them saying, well, I've had it. Now, if that person, there's a point when they say, I'm out, the Bible's going to teach us they're out, but you don't instigate that. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I know people, some of you do, great examples of this. Bless them, pray for them, cheer them on. They're living the hard life. But God's going to do something great through them because of their love and testimony to Christ, those around them, including a spouse, including a child. Many of you have experienced, whether it's a spouse or a wayward child, God can do great things. Steady the course. Trust him. Don't jump ahead. Focus on what God wants to do. So as we think back of Ezra, remember there's a difference. Um, some lessons from this study. There's a difference between what we call descriptive passages and prescriptive passages. Remember that? I've given you that talk a few times. A descriptive thing in Scripture is the Bible just tells us something that happened. And we're like, well, that happened. That's kind of weird. And just as describing something. Prescriptive passages when we are told to do something. Ezra 9 and 10, we are not being told to divorce pagan spouses. Everybody good with that? Trust me on that? It's describing what happened, why it happened in that time. Nowhere else is that described. Paul's teaching is, hey, we got to work through this. All right? Know the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. Number two lesson from Ezra, be sensitive to God's holiness and the conviction of sin, whether small or great. Be sensitive to God's holiness and the conviction of sin. The Lord may be challenging you with something right now in your head that no one in the room knows about except you. Or maybe something you come back to where as you 
Lean on God's word, you, you sense, well, I need to take care of this. I need to stop doing this. I need to lean into this over here. You be sensitive to God's holiness and conviction. Number three, seek counsel on how to respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction as needed. And I say that because marriage is a dicey thing. <laughs> Amen. And so if you've got an unstable, something's not really great marriage, that's where you need to say, I need some help. I need some encouragement. Hey, you got some ideas of what I should do because this is taking place? Get some counsel when you respond to the Spirit's conviction. Number four, as sin is dealt with, leave judgmental attitudes at the door. When sin is being dealt with, leave the judgmental attitudes at the door. Check it there. And throw gossip in there. Leave gossip at the door. Judgmental says, wow, what a mess you are. So glad I got it together. God, please forgive us when we think like that. Number five, seek to honor God as you serve him and influence others. Seek to honor God uh, as we serve him. You, 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 I'm talking to you. You have an influence on other people. You may not think a lot about it. You, you may be like modest in your approach to that. You are influencing other people. Seek to honor God as you serve him and influence let me wrap it with this. And again, I apologize for going long, sorry, not sorry kind of thing, but let's wrap it with this. When we have a high view of Scripture, we have a realistic view of sin. When we have a realistic view of sin, we have an amazing view of grace. Would you guys stand with me? And we're going to say that together. Let's all stand together and wrap this up. This lets us know the goodness of God in the midst of our mess. When Jesus shows up on Christmas morning in that little feeding trough, grace enters the room because man is desperately, desperately in need. We can't do it ourselves. We can't do it because we're good looking or because we have money and resources and we're, we're Americans or we're this or we're that. We're totally desolate without the work of God in our lives. We all need what Christmas brings to us. We all need what the Savior offers to us in his substitutionary atonement where he steps in and says, I want to take your place on that cross. It all starts with this beautiful Christmas morning. So because of that, let's say it out loud together. When we have a high view of Scripture, we have a realistic view of sin. When we have a realistic view of sin, we have an amazing view of grace. Father, we thank you for that truth. Lord, none of us probably saw how Ezra was going to end out this story in this weird season of purging and cleansing and separating and talking about divorce. And Lord, it doesn't always set well, but at the end of the day, we trust you for your rules. We trust you for how you have worked in the story. And Lord, with that, we worship you today. May we, each of us, have an understanding from Scripture, from the truth of your word, what sin really is and what you're calling us to. You've never called us to perfection. You've always called us to dependency, to depend on you, to trust you, and to take the brokenness and the, and the missteps and the, and the horrible moments and to bring those before you and say, God, it's never too late. Thank you for what you've done for us. And I pray your blessing on this church as we enter this holiday season to make much of that first coming of Jesus, our Savior. We ask this in your name. Amen.